Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hey there, and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. Our guests today are Professor Claire Kremen and Assistant Professor Alistair Isles, in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. Claire Kremen focuses her research on conservation biology and biodiversity. Alistair Isles focuses his research on the intersections of science, technology, and environment that contribute to public policy, community welfare, environmental justice, and increased democracy in societal governance. Brad Swift interviews the pair about their time as faculty directors of the Berkeley Center for Diversified Farming, and the recent launch of the Berkeley Food Institute. This ambitious enterprise is a collaboration between the College of Natural Resources, the Goldman School of Public Policy, the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Berkeley Law School, and the School of Public Health. Alistair Isles is hearing impaired, so PhD candidate Patrick Bauer will be reading Alistair's answers during this interview. In today's interview, we have three folks, Claire Kremen, Alistair Isles, and Patrick Bauer. Welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Thank you. And a nod from Alistair. I want to ask each of you, how were you drawn to the study of sustainability and diversified farming? I work on native bees and how they contribute to crop pollination in California. And it was really through my study of the bees and particularly of how bees respond to agriculture that I got interested in farming and that my eyes got open to how unsustainable our current farming system is, particularly with its heavy reliance on monoculture. My background is in environmental policies, and I've mostly worked on industrial chemical issues. For a long time, I've also researched the consumption side of food, starting with sustainable seafood. About three years ago, Claire was running a series of roundtables on diversified farming systems, And by a chance at a faculty lunch, she invited me to participate. I wasn't sure what it was all about, but I enjoyed learning about ecosystem services. I realized that agriculture has a major role to play in making the planet more resilient in the face of many 21st century environmental dangers like climate change. Trying to change consumer behavior isn't going to be enough to achieve greater sustainability. We need to cover the whole food system and to find new connections across each part So that's why I moved much more upstream into agriculture. Talk about the new Berkeley Food Institute that you've formed at Cal. How did it get started, and what are its goals? We began with a roundtable series on diversified farming systems, or DFS, about three years ago. I can't believe how far we have already come since then. The series was based on a seed grant from the Berkeley Institute of Environment, It had monthly meetings and spanned an enormous range of topics, from conservation biology, consumer behavior, the health effects of pesticides on farm workers, to policies for promoting DFS. At first, we weren't sure what our goals were. 
we had a vague idea that the roundtable might evolve into a more institutionalized form. Claire wanted to co-write a paper covering the results of the roundtables, but it quickly became obvious that it was such a large topic that we needed a whole special issue to even do justice to the topics. Fortunately, we were able to persuade the Ecology and Society Journal to accept our special issue plan. It was a lengthy process of assembling the various papers. The students are co-authors on most of the papers. We believe strongly in promoting student research, and Claire and I wanted to institutionalize the roundtables, and that is how we conceived the DFS Center. We realized that we couldn't manage all this new growth without hiring an executive director, which meant that we needed to start raising funds. And as we started looking into funding for the Center for Diversified Farming, and as we engaged both with donors and also with the top levels of the College of Natural Resources administration, it became clear that there was actually an opportunity to do something much bigger and much more far-reaching by partnering with the schools of journalism and of public policy. And that's because it's not sufficient to conduct the research that demonstrates the social and environmental benefits of sustainable agriculture or diversified farming systems. You really have to get the word out to a large public, and you have to be able to influence key decision makers. So it makes a lot of sense for us to be partnering with journalism and public policy. Later in the Institute's development, we also were joined by other key actors, specifically the schools of public health and also the school of law. So the goal of the Institute is really a lofty one. We want nothing less than to be able, through research, teaching, and outreach, to be able to actually transform our current food system to one that is far more resilient, far more healthy, and far more just. How is the Institute funded? We're funded at this point by private individuals and also by family foundations. Are there undergraduate and graduate degree programs within the Institute? Not yet, but we are contemplating creating something called a designated emphasis for graduate students, which means several different departments combine together and uh, create an additional degree program that graduate students can go through. And we're also beginning to assess whether an undergraduate major makes sense. The first step we're taking already is to conduct an inventory of what's already available on campus. There are quite a few different faculty that are already teaching courses related to the food system. And so we're identifying all of these so that students can have access to this information, those who are already interested in this. Our guests today on Spectrum are Claire Kremen and Alistair Isles. In the next segment, they talk about impediments to sustainable farming. This is KALX Berkeley. What sort of collaborations will you be trying to foster with the Institute? One of the key actions that the new Institute will emphasize is nurturing new research and policy collaborations between faculty and students. Many parts of the food system are balkanized. They are divided up from each other and seldom communicate across disciplinary, industry, or supply chain segment lines. For example, urban agriculture policymakers might not think much about the sorts of foods that city gardens are providing to poorer minority neighborhoods. What we hope for is a set of collaborations that will cross disciplinary lines and that will address research topics that aren't being done, but that could help bring about positive changes in the food system. Another thing that we are eager to look into is helping foster stronger connections with off-campus actors, such as farmers, food worker unions, government agencies, and Bay Area communities. This is where this would help inform the research being done on campus, 
and where it might help enhance the ability of these actors to work toward the transformation of the food system that Claire talked about. Some of our faculty already have off-campus partners that they run research projects with. Citizen science, or working with lay people and helping generate new science, will likely be an important element, but not the only one. How directly will the Institute be involved in actual farming or working directly with farmers? We will definitely include growers on our advisory board, and also some faculty actually work with growers. For example, my work is all on farms owned by real people, and so I work with growers on the kinds of experiments we're going to do and also on sometimes on land management that they're doing on their land. What do you see as the impediments to the broad practice of sustainable agriculture, and how can research and education help The impediments to sustainable agriculture are legion. The most important impediment is arguably the industrialized food system that we currently live in. The system is based on farming methods that include monoculture farming, the pervasive use of chemical and fossil fuel inputs, and an emphasis on increasing yields to the exclusion of other outcomes. The system is so entrenched that everyone who grows, processes, and eats food is caught in it. One example of how the industrial system discourages sustainable farming is the artificially cheap price of foods. The food industry can externalize most environmental and social costs of producing food by displacing these into farming communities, consumers, and ecosystems. Public policies connive in this by promoting inappropriate subsidies for commodity crops and not properly funding conservation measures on farmland. In turn, many farmers are trapped within a production structure where they have little room to adopt sustainable farming methods. They may have to comply with supply chain pressures such as contract farming that prescribes exactly what they should do on the farm, or the rapid growth and market power of the agri-food corporations. For decades, farmers have been struggling with the technological treadmill, where they are obliged to adopt technological innovations such as pesticides and now GM seeds to be able to maintain their yields and cost structures in order to compete with other farmers doing likewise. Conversely, it can be very challenging for farmers to move to more sustainable methods, It is risky for farmers to try something new that they aren't familiar with and that requires them to develop new skills and knowledge. There has been a dramatic decline in the number of farmers in the U.S., and there has been a trend of fewer new farmers entering the sector. On the positive side, these new entrants are more likely to use sustainable farming methods because they've been trained differently. I think the broadest impediments are some aspects of our regulatory system and also market forces that encourage economies of scale, a sort of thing that make farmers have to get big or get out. For example, on the regulatory side, this new Food Safety Modernization Act is something that's going to impose a lot of regulations on growers and that can actually disadvantage small growers. And sometimes it's the small growers that are the ones that are practicing more sustainable or more diversified forms of agriculture. But with this new Food Safety Modernization Act, they just might not be able to stay in business any longer. So the critical research that we need to do is to document the benefits and the costs and also the trade-offs of different approaches. We need to be able to show what these benefits are so that we can hopefully have an influence on some of the regulations. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guests today are Claire Kremen and Alistair Isles. Patrick Bauer will be reading Alistair Isles' answers as Alistair is hearing impaired. In the next segment, they talk about how they analyze sustainable farming. 
Would you explain how you analyze an agricultural system for sustainability? From an ecological perspective, what I find helpful is the concept of an agriculture that is regenerative. What that means, it's an agriculture that demands few external inputs and creates few wastes. Instead, it tends to use the waste products that are produced in the production cycle as inputs. So, for example, by composting waste materials or by integrating animals back onto the farm, growers can build soils. These soils are then able to store water much more effectively, protecting against droughts, and they can also require, in that case, less water from external sources. Also, these soils can trap and filter nutrients, leading to less nutrient waste and less pollution off-site. And then such soils are also much more productive, so they can lead to greater yields. So it's really a win-win-win-win. I can't really see any downside to farming like that. In terms of the social and economic components of an agricultural system, there are many possible measures that we could use. Social scientists have looked at measures such as the justice that is embodied in the system. That is, is the agricultural system assuring justice for all the workers, growers, and communities across the system. This justice could take the form of fair worker treatment, such as paying farm workers better wages and preventing adverse health effects like heat stroke. It could also be limiting the exposures of farm workers in rural communities to pesticides. Another measure is food security, or the ability of consumers and communities, especially poorer and minority people, to gain access to enough nutritious and healthy foods to feed themselves. In the U.S., there are at least 40 million people who depend on food stamps to supplement their diets. Yet these people may not be able to afford healthy, sustainably produced foods. Yet another measure is whether farmers are able to sustain themselves through their work or whether they fall into greater debt to be able to stay in farming at all. Many NGOs and food movements, such as the Food Sovereignty Movement, would argue that the ability of farmers and communities to decide on what sorts of foods they want to produce and eat is an important outcome in and of itself. How has the understanding and measurement of sustainability changed over the years you have studied it? Social scientists have only been thinking about sustainability for a fairly short time since about the early 1990s. Sustainable development as a discourse first began developing in the late 1980s with the Brundtland Commission's report. Initially, social scientists were focused more on the rural sociology of agricultural production. They looked at issues in isolation and emphasized farmers only. But as more researchers began to enter the sustainability field, the focus shifted to thinking more holistically. They started to look at food supply chains and commodities and how these shape the sustainability of farming. Researchers also began looking at how communities were defining sustainability in their own terms. In 2000, Jack Kloppenberg led a very interesting study that surveyed a set of rural and urban communities for the sorts of words they would use to describe sustainability. More recently, social scientists have looked at how ecological and social sustainability are closely interconnected. Some of the most exciting new work is looking at the concept of socio-ecological systems, or how farmers are actively shaping farming landscapes and vice versa. Are there estimates or models that show the reductions in greenhouse gas that could be achieved in the conversion from industrial monoculture agriculture to sustainable agriculture? This is actually something that's fairly well known. The production of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides is a really energy-intensive process. And so where it has been looked at 
when people compare organic agriculture that avoids using those chemicals with conventional agriculture, organic agriculture usually stacks up much better as far as greenhouse gas emissions. And this is true even though often organic growers have to perhaps use more fuel to do more cultivation practices on their lands, but it balances out because they are not using these energy-intensively produced chemicals. Biofuels were thought to be a sustainable source of energy and an enormous boost for agriculture as well. What are your thoughts on biofuels? I've been looking at the environmental and social effects of biofuels in the U.S. and Brazil for a few years now. Some years ago, biofuels were seen as a very promising technology that could help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But in 2008, a scientist called Tim Serchinger sparked off a long debate about whether biofuels actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the overall picture. Some biofuels can actually lead to increased emissions because their production involves the direct or indirect cutting down of forests to clear land for agriculture, which results in carbon dioxide release. The upshot is that governments and NGOs now see biofuels much more skeptically. I think this is a positive development rather than uncritically embracing biofuels as a new development pathway. At the same time, the debate has now swung so much that people often don't distinguish between different types of biofuels. Biofuels are actually very diverse in their feedstock and production methods. Most of the bad press is around corn ethanol in the U.S., and I think it's justified because, as Michael Pollan, for example, has written about, the corn industry has created countless environmental problems. But there are what we call cellulosic feedstocks, grasses, agricultural crop leftovers, and trees. In principle, we can have diversified farming systems that include these sorts of cellulosic crops as part of a fully integrated and diversified landscape. Rather than having a few larger farmers and agri-food businesses dominate corn ethanol and thereby the biofuels industry, we could alternatively have many smaller farmers produce grasses, for example. This is something that the new institute may look at. The challenge, however, is that cellulosic ethanol could easily succumb to the same industrialized monoculture model as we see for corn. So policy will have a very important role in the next decade in helping decide whether this will happen or not. Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Our guests are Claire Kremen and Alistair Isles. They're starting the Berkeley Food Institute this fall. In the next segment, they talk about the scalability of sustainable farming and its impact on rural communities. From your experience, what is the scale range of farms doing sustainable agriculture? Even large-scale farms are starting to incorporate sustainability practices into their businesses, which is really exciting. But it's a question whether they're truly sustainable. As an ecologist, I don't believe that the practice of monoculture is compatible with sustainability. To have sustainability, we need more diverse farming systems. When we have these diverse farming systems, it can reduce the need for off-farm inputs and also generate fewer wastes. A good example of this is going back to pesticides and monoculture. When a grower grows a monoculture, they're pretty much forced to use pesticides. When you think about it, they're planting a huge expanse of the same thing, and it's kind of like laying out a feast for a pest species that can just go and rampage through that. And at the same time, they've also eradicated the habitat that would have promoted the natural enemies that could have kept that pest in check. So then they really have no other recourse. They have to use pesticides. 
And as I already noted, these take a great deal of energy to produce. They result in greenhouse gas emissions. They pollute the surrounding environment. They can lead to unintended loss of biodiversity of non-target insects. Also, both subtle and not so subtle impacts on human health. When we do that, we can't really have a sustainable system. But on the other hand, we shouldn't conflate the practice of monoculture with scale because smaller farms can also practice monoculture and do sometimes practice monoculture. And at the same time, perhaps larger farms can practice really diversified agriculture. It's not what I would think of as typical, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think it's important that we not limit our imagination. We be able to imagine that a really large farm could be diverse, could be sustainable. Why not? Does sustainability in any way limit the scale that can be achieved? Well, I think it's an excellent question, and we don't really have the answer to it. If we just look at what's out there, it seems like if you're at a larger scale, maybe that's going to be less sustainable in some ways, but it might be more sustainable in some other ways. There's certainly a relationship between scale and and sustainability if we just look out at what's happening now. There could be unexpected twists. For example, very large companies may be able to develop sustainable practices of certain types, such as efficiencies in distribution, that small companies can't. On the other hand, smaller farms or companies might be better able to create the ecological complexity that we think is required to engender sustainable processes on farms. Also, when we think about it, some of these limits that do exist to creating sustainable systems might relate not to biophysical limits, but to institutional arrangements or governance structures, business plans, etc. And again, they might be failures of our imagination to conceive of a better way of doing things. So I think it's really an excellent research topic. We need to study the successful models that exist out there at various scales and try to learn from them. Are there studies that show the impact of sustainable agriculture on rural societies and economies? And will the Institute undertake work in this area? Frankly, we don't really know what the answers may be. This is because there have been very few systemic studies done of the ways in which sustainable agriculture might benefit rural areas. In the 1940s, a UC researcher called Walter Goldschmidt did a very important study. He compared two rural towns in California that differed in the degree of diversified farming and the degree to which they relied on industrialized farming methods. The town that used more diversified methods showed significant gains of social and economic outcomes, such as employment and community cohesiveness, compared to the more industrialized town. Unfortunately, this sort of study hasn't been done again, as far as we are aware. Thus, a priority of the new institute will be to help sponsor a collaborative research project that updates this research and uses the tools and data that we now have to appraise whether and how diversified farming can provide greater benefits compared to the existing system. What do you feel are the best ways to encourage and enable young people to pursue farming? One of the most challenging obstacles we face in the food system today is that there is a rapidly aging farmer workforce. The average age of farmers in the U.S. is about 57 years, which is something you see in other industrial countries as well. There are widespread perceptions of farming as anachronistic and tedious. Many commentators think that many young people are unenthusiastic about taking up farming for this reason. Farming is in the past. Therefore, one argument goes, we should invest more and more in labor-saving technology to help offset the fact that fewer young people are entering farming. 
In Australia, where I come from, I heard about a farmer recently who just installed a $400,000 robotic system to milk cows. I don't agree with this sort of argument. To the contrary, we are seeing a good number of young people take up farming in both rural and especially urban areas. Farming seems to be a way to reconnect these people with a more sensory and experience-rich life. There are tens of farmers' schools that are developed across the country, such as the Alba Center near Salinas, where immigrant workers learn to be farmers and are given some support for entering the sector. This is one very powerful way to help new farmers, provide training programs to help equip them for actual production. But they then face enormous problems in even getting a toehold on the farming landscape because land can be very costly and very scarce. So they need financial help, like loans and grants, to sustain their first few years at least. There is a new farmer network that has been pushing for a bill in Congress to create this new institutional base, but unfortunately so far it's not been very successful. A big thanks to Claire Kremen and Alistair Isles for coming on to Spectrum. All past Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes U. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. Now a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski and I present the calendar. On September 8th, the UC Berkeley Botanical Garden will be hosting a workshop led by author Amy Stewart, who wrote The Drunken Botanist, The Plants That Create the World's Greatest Drinks, a book that details the leaves, bark, seeds, roots, flowers, and fruit around the world that humans have contrived to turn into alcohol. Stewart will lead a walk through the garden to look at some of the typical plants that have been used throughout the ages. The workshop will be held in the garden from 3 to 6 p.m. on September 8th. The first installment of the six-part public lecture series, Not on the Test, The Pleasures and Uses of Mathematics, will be held this September 11th. Past Spectrum guest, Tony DeRose, a senior scientist and leader of the research group at Pixar Animation Studios, will present a lecture on the use of mathematics in the making of Pixar's animated films. Pixar animation is done entirely by computer, and Dr. DeRose will demonstrate how math and science helped create the stunning visuals in each Pixar film, and explain the underlying computer technology, physics, geometry, and applied mathematics that made these pictures possible. The lecture will be held on September 11th at 7 p.m. in the Berkeley City College Auditorium located at 2050 Center Street in Berkeley. The event is free and open to the public. This month's Science Neat is on Tuesday the 17th. The topic is fungi. Hear talks about mushrooms and bring your own mushrooms to have mycologist Chris Green help you identify them. Science Need is a monthly science happy hour for those 21 and over at El Rio Bar, 3158 Mission Street in San Francisco. Admission is $4. Here at Spectrum, we'd like to share our favorite science stories with you. Rick Karneski joins me for presenting the news. Nature News reports that several journals have been caught in a scheme to artificially inflate their impact factors by strongly encouraging citations to other journals that were in on the scheme. The impact factor of journals is a measure of the average number of citations to recent articles and is often used to compare the relative importance of a journal to a field. That is, journals with higher impact factors are generally thought of more favorably than lower impact journals. The factors are calculated by Thomson Reuters, 
the company responsible for both EndNote citation software and the Web of Science literature database. While self-citations have been caught in the past, weeding out this collaborative gaming of the system is difficult, and it can be costly for those journals caught. Thomson Reuters has suspended the impact factors of 0.6% of the more than 10,000 journals they index, a record percentage. In some cases, editors have been fired. In others, articles published in the suspended journals will not contribute to the rankings of universities responsible for them. According to a UC Berkeley study published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, blocking a certain enzyme can dramatically slow the ability of tumor cells to multiply and spread to other tissues. Scientists have long observed that cancer cells metabolize lipids, in particular ester lipids, at higher rates than normal cells. The UC Berkeley team inactivated a certain enzyme known as alkylglycerone phosphate synthase, or AGPS, that is critical to lipid formation in human breast and skin cancer cells. Knocking out the enzyme significantly reduced tumor growth and movement. The inhibitor has also been tested in live mice injected with cancer cells to promising results. While other studies have examined specific lipids, AGPS appears to regulate a much broader portion of tumor growth and malignancy. Next steps will include developing a cancer therapy based on the AGPS inhibitors. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. We'd also like to thank Patrick Bauer for his assistance during the interview. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Spectrum.